0: Our series, Captain Amazing, is kind of a quick overlook or overview, rather, of, of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. And a lot of people stay away from Revelation because they understand that it's apocalyptic themes and prophetic, and, or maybe sometimes people stay away from it because they're freaked out by some of the language. But it's a very important book, and as far as I know, it's the only one of the 66 books that God promises a special blessing to anybody who will read it and listen to it. And so I think that's a good reason within itself enough for me to talk to you about revelation. But I do need to let you know one thing. The title of the book is not Revelations. Every once in a while somebody will tell me, hey, Mark, I was reading in the book of Revelations. They know what they mean. But there's the idea that Revelations is a book about revelations that God is making about the future. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find out that that's not what the title is. The title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God is not interested necessarily in titillating us with about details about what's going to happen at the end. What God wants us to know is who Jesus Christ is, because that's what, that's what this whole book is about. That's who God is all about. The Bible tells us that when God forgave us, he forgave us for Jesus' sake. So God is showing us Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from a Greek word, actually two Greek words jammed together, apo, Kalypto. means veil, apo means away. So clearly, what revelation is, is the pulling away of the veil of Jesus Christ and revealing who he really is. And so that's what I've, I've tried to show to you up till now, today, and then we will in the final week of our series coming up next week in a message called The Captain of the Lord's Army, and it's all about Armageddon. And well, I say it's all about Armageddon, really, I'm just starting there because I want to show you what it's going to be like when Jesus, Captain Amazing, really does become the ruler and the king of this world. But today, we're going to talk about something different. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't get up this morning and think, wow, I can't wait to get to New Spring and preach. Because honestly, this is a talk that if I, if I, had, my, if I, had, if I had my way, I, I wouldn't preach it. I mean, it's, it's something that's not pleasant. It's not fun to talk about. Because in this series on Captain Amazing, I do need to talk about the other side. I need to talk about the other team. Chances are you've heard, whether you're a religious person or whether you're a person that's aware of pop culture entertainment, you know that there is a period of time coming, or at least you've heard of it, called the Tribulation Period. Chances are, whether you're a religious person or you've just watched movies about the Antichrist, you know that it's a period of seven years where a lot of bad things are going to happen. There's gonna be a character who is a lead in this drama whose name is Antichrist, or that's how we know him today. And, And you know that it's going to be a single world government so whether you come from a faith-based background or you come from entertainment, chance, or you come from the secular world and you've watched entertainment, chances are you know that much already. But here's what you could think. You could think, if you wanted to, that, um, that it's some sort of anomaly. It's, it's, a weird, it's a weird aberration of time, the seven-year period of time. But that's not true. You must understand that the tribulation period is the culmination. It is the climactic scene of a battle that's been going on for millennia, a battle between God and Satan. To help us understand, I want to go back to a conversation 2,000 years ago between Jesus and Satan. Satan has come to try to swindle Jesus out out of God's plan, just like he swindled our first parents. We call it the temptation of Jesus. Now, Satan will not be successful this time. Here is something that you must understand, though, when you look at the temptation of Jesus. Satan and Jesus know each other very well. They have history. See, Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that he is God. In the beginning was God, and the word was with God. The Greek word there means face-to-face, suggesting or denoting equality. Face-to-face with God, and the word was God. And John goes on to say that nothing was made that Jesus didn't make. So consequently, Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. He was God who became human. And Satan had been an angel, Lucifer, that God created, and his responsibility was to lead the other angels in worship. But as we'll see in just a few moments in a verse, he got full of himself and decided that he wanted to be God, and and God thumped him out of heaven, which is why Jesus would say when he was on the earth, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I just want you to understand that when Satan comes along to talk to Jesus, they have history with each other and they know each other. Now, I want you to hear this thing that Satan says to Jesus, not so much so that we can go into the temptation of Christ. We'll save that for another day. I want you to hear three statements that Satan makes to Jesus. See, before I get there, a lot of people ask me, if God is, over, if God is supreme in the world, why do all these bad things happen? For some of you, the light is about to come on. Whether you're watching in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, watching on television, watching online around the world, for some of you, the light is about to flicker on. Let me show you these three statements that Satan makes to Jesus. And then we'll go through each one of them. Let me read the verse. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Just get comfortable with that word world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And just so that we'll clean up this idea of the temptation of Jesus, you do understand, of course, that if Jesus had bitten the fruit like our first parents did, Satan would have still been in charge of all the kingdoms of the world because Jesus would have worshipped him. And he's got a plan for another person who will do exactly this. Jesus, of course, blew him completely off. But that's not what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the three statements that Satan makes to Jesus, because as you notice, Jesus didn't check him on any of this. Jesus didn't counter him. He didn't say you're wrong. So Satan said three things. I mean, the first thing he said is, the authority and the splendor of the world has been delivered over to him. Jesus didn't say that was wrong. So we have to assume that it stands as fact. Satan says, one more time, the authority and the splendor of the world has been delivered over to me. Well, who did it? God didn't do it. And we know that Satan didn't steal it. Satan said it had been delivered over to him. Well, who delivered it over to him? Our first parents, Adam and Eve. See, one of the things that many people fail to understand about creation is that God made Adam and Eve in his image. And when he made them in his image as special creations... He wanted them to have a sphere of kingdom like he had a sphere of kingdom. Listen to the language that God spoke to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Watch the next three verbs. Fill the earth, govern it, reign. See what I'm saying? God gave Adam and Eve kingdom authority over the, over the earth. And he expected, and he also gave them the, the ability to procreate and have descendants. And So that was, his, that was his plan, that holy, righteous people made in God's image would have a glorious earth where they would have a sphere of influence like God has, under his, under his sovereignty, of course. And along comes Satan to our first parents and swindles them out of kingdom authority for a piece of fruit. Now, you say, Mark, that sounds insane. Really? I mean, take a look at your friends and and all the important things they lose over the most worthless trivialities. Well, at the moment that Adam and Eve joined Satan's church, and by the way, by extension, joined his doom... You know, you need need people that once will say, well, why is there a hell? The Bible's so clear on that. God made hell for Satan and his demons. But when people join Satan's church, they come under his condemnation. Now, the second thing that Satan says is that he can give his authority and power and influence to anyone he wants to. Now, you understand what I mean by this when I ask you to put yourself in Satan's place. I want you to think like he thinks for just a moment. Because you realize he's not omnipresent like God. He can't be everywhere in one place. He's he's relegated to one place at one time. However, he's not all by himself. When Satan rebelled against God, the Bible indicates that he took a third of the angels with him. Last week, if you were here, we just talked about how there's a choir of angels that had a million angels in it. So, just by mathematics, if Satan took a third of the angels, he took at least a half million angels angels slash demons with him. And of course, that gives him quite an army. And the Bible tells us there are hierarchies of demons. So, given Satan's statement that he can give his authority, power, and influence to anyone he wants to, put yourself in his place. Where would you invest them? In the power centers. In places like media, education, politics, religion. none no, and no, on it goes. If, you want to, if Satan wants to use his influence and and turn over his influence to the places that he wants to turn over obviously he's going to do it to the most strategic places with the most influence are you starting to get a feel for why the world is like it is let's go to the third statement satan uses these chips to get what he eventually wants in the temptation of jesus he said what he wanted to be was worshiped he said if you will fall down and worship me i will give you all of it game set match See, Satan has wanted to be worshipped, and that's what got him in trouble with God in the first place. In the book of Isaiah chapter 14, we're told about what happened before the world was ever created. God said, Satan said, I will ascend to the heaven, set my throne above God's stars. That's a synonym for angels there. I will preside. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high God. Well, Satan was leading all the other angels in worship. He was like, I don't know why God's getting all the props. I should have some too. And so he decided he was going to be like God. And God said, no, you're not. Thumped him out of heaven. That's why Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So if you look at this world and you're puzzled by it, because if you see evil in the world, you understand that Satan has authority, but can't you also see the hand of God in our world too? Doesn't that puzzle you? Well, it's for good reason. Because Satan was surprised by something. This is what you must understand. If you want to understand the whole purpose of the Bible, you must understand that when Satan lured our first parents and he swindled them out of kingdom authority over a piece of fruit, God did something that surprised Satan immeasurably. See, Satan thought that God was going to do the same thing with you and me that he did with the angels. When the angels rebelled against God, he thumped them out of heaven and he never gave them another chance. He never made a way for them to have a second chance. And so obviously Satan is going after our parents at the fountainhead. He knows that God has given them the ability to procreate, so he wants to go after them because if he gets them to fall, he gets all of us to fall with them. And his idea is, yeah, (laughs) I got them. I got his special creation. And he's going to do just like he did with the angels. He's not going to give them a second chance. And they're going to, he's going to let them spin into a black hole and they're going to hell with me. Guys, I want to tell you something. If you look at this book, I will tell you the message of this book is God loved us too much to let us go. And God said, this isn't the end of the story. But now God's got an issue. He's got a couple of issues on his hands. The first issue is he's got to find a way to pay for the sin and the damage that Satan did. A lot of times people tell me God is a God of love, and it's true. You go as far as you go in love and you will find God, but what you must understand, and a lot of people don't like to hear, is that God is also a God of justice. And so while he is a God of perfect love, he is also a God of perfect justice. If you want to know how much God is a God of perfect justice, just look at what he put his beloved son through in order to pay for our sins on the cross, So God has an issue on his hands, two issues. Number one, he must find a way to pay for the damage that's been done. And after he finds a way to pay for the damage that has been done, he has got to set up a platform whereby his human race can have a second opportunity at making a choice. See, God does not enforce, God does not force himself on anybody. This whole thing is about choice. I mean, people ask me sometimes, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to stand, why did he put a tree in a garden? You just don't understand. God doesn't want forced love. He, he always wants a choice. And so, I mean, you think about God's two issues. He's got to find a way to pay for Satan's sin. Number two, he's got to set, set up a platform how we could have a second choice. Now, what if, what if he became human? Because you and I can't pay for our sin because we're sinners. And the angels can't pay for it. And Satan's sure not going to pay for the damage he's done. So God looks around to see who can can pay for the damage and the only person who can pay is God. So God is saying, what if I became human and I lived the life for them that they can't live? I lived a life of holiness and purity and perfection. And instead of reaping the reward for that life, what if I turned around and paid for all their sin? I took that perfect life and put it on a Roman cross. And I hung between heaven and earth with nails in my hands and nails in my feet and thorns hammered into my brow and people spitting in my face and pulling my beard out and abusing me in just about every way that you can imagine, hanging naked on a cross, God in human skin, hanging on a cross naked for six hours, brutalized. And what if he walked out of the grave three days later and ascended to heaven and then because of that payment offered to every human being another opportunity to, as it were, go back into the Garden of Eden and choose again? Which, by the way, every time I get to the end of a sermon and say, if you'd like to pray with me, I'm taking you back to where Adam and Eve was, and you got a chance to choose. Well, of course. You know, that means there are two groups of people in the world now. There are those who say, you know, I don't think I want that. And then there are people like some of us who say we do want Jesus. And and therein is a tension, and we feel that tension today, and it's very strong, and it's stronger than it's ever been, as far as I know, at least in America. And there are those in America who say, well, why don't we just find a way for everybody to get along? Why don't we just find some sort of compromise? I love the way the message says this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says, how can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not a partnership. That's war. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Well, here's what you need to understand. In the world that you and I live in, God is is patient. But the situation that we have right now with this tension is not going to go on forever. And here's the thing. Satan... Knows it. Every once in a while, people will tell me, Well, do you think Satan thinks he's gonna win? No, he knows God very well. In Revelation chapter 12, which is where we're gonna start today, in Revelation 12, the Bible tells about what happened when Satan got kicked out of heaven. I wanna read this to you. The heavens should rejoice together with everyone who lives there, but pity the earth because the devil was thrown down to earth. He knows his time is short and he's very angry. So remember this, it's kind of an axiom. The shorter Satan's time gets, the more frantic and angry he is going to be. All right, let's run a subtotal. Where are we right now? We live in a world that's been turned over to Satan. We know that he gives influence to the power brokers. His time is shorter than ever, which means he's angry and frantic. God is winding this thing up. We know if you were here last week, we have been in the last days for at least 49 years as of the first week of this last June. And you and I, who are Christians, we live in the, actually, even if you're not a believer, we all live in this tension between two groups of people who have made two very different choices. When the Bible talks about Satan's voice in the world, in agenda, it uses the term world. And world, in this sense, is not the inhabited earth. That's a different Greek word. But this particular word for world means system a system of thinking a way of thinking a way of living and the weird thing about it is today as you can imagine with all these with satan blaring his voices from these megaphones from the power centers even those of us who are christians can hear these voices and we can get confused and so so that we don't have that confusion I want to read to you several verses about what the Bible calls the world. And I'm going to ask your indulgence because I'm going to read like five of them in a row because there's sort of a progression to these verses. When Jesus was on the earth, he said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify what it does is evil. Well, you know, that's all you have to do in our world today. And the weird thing is, if you do this, you get accused of hate. I want you to hear what Jesus said. He said, the world hates me because I point out what's wrong. Today, if you point out something is wrong behavior, then you're called a hate monger. Well, Satan's very smart. That's, that's, he's just lever. I mean, that's his agenda. But Jesus was clear about that. Now, in the next verse, in John 17, verse 14, he said, I've given them, that's, that's you and me, I've given them your world and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not, Jesus is praying to the Father, this is the night of his arrest. My prayer is not that you will take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Now there's a message for you and me from 1 John. The Bible says, love not the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, that's the system, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, that takes us right back to that there's no middle ground. Now, in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, this is the most significant of these texts because what John is going to do now is he's going to talk about the spirit of Antichrist, which is the attitude that the Antichrist is going to have in the last days. He's, he's going to talk about the spirit of Antichrist, and he's going to make it tantamount to the world that Jesus has been talking about. Let's read. And especially when we get to verse 5. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now look at verse 5. This is really important, because if you want to know where we are in 2016 America, this is where we are. They are from the world, and therefore they speak the viewpoint of the world, and the world... Listens to them. In other words, there is a spirit of Antichrist, Anti God in our world. And they speak the viewpoint of the world. And how do you know whether you're in the world or not? Because the people in the world listen when the viewpoint of the world is spoken. Now, this is what puzzles me. And if I were smart in the ways of the world, there's probably no megachurch pastor in his right mind who would say what I'm about to say. But I'm well aware of the fact that when you come in here and I talk to you, someday I'm going to answer to God for what I'm going to say. And your soul is hanging in the balance. And you do know that when you die and you stand before God, you're not going to be standing before any of these political centers of the world where Satan's voices come from. What troubles me today is I hear people who claim to follow Jesus, but their lives are shaped by the messages of this world system. And even when they talk about their faith in Jesus, it's not this kind of faith that I read about in the Bible. It's a faith that's some kind of satanically inspired message Philip Yancey, who is a great author, some of you read his books. We have some of them in the bookstore. But Philip Yancey talks about a woman who's a friend of his named Susan, and she was in the process of leaving her husband, actively looking for other men to meet her needs for intimacy. And when she talked to Philip Yancey, she said, "You know, I pray for an hour every morning." Well, can you put yourself in Philip Yancey's place? I mean, he's a pastor, and this woman has just told him she's leaving her husband because he doesn't make her happy, and she's looking to multiple men at that point for intimacy, but she says she's praying for an hour every morning. And honestly, I think Philip Yancey's question to her is really pretty gentle. He said, in your meetings with the father, do any moral issues come up that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband? And she bristled, and she said, that sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. Ladies and gentlemen, that's about six inches on the other side of insanity. I have a relationship with my children when they were growing up. But I have a responsibility as a parent to say what wrong behavior is and what right behavior is. You know, the weird thing is, when I say all this, some of you are going to say, "Oh, well, I, I think she was right. I don't know what to say to you. I mean, I do. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's what I would say. I would pray it's not too late for you because there are people that just reject God until God goes away. But if there's anything in you capable of listening to God, I would ask you to turn from that and come to God now. That's what I would say. Okay. Let's talk about the tribulation. The Antichrist, 666 and all that. Somebody could say, well, Mark, you left me a few minutes ago because I'm still confused here. Is God in charge or is Satan in charge? And that is a great question because it is confusing. Because after all, Jesus has won the battle on the cross and when he rose from the grave. So why at that moment did God not say, okay, bring down the curtain, finish Satan off? Well, you have to understand that God is patient. And so he's in the hopes that there are people here today or watching online or on television who will say, I want to choose Jesus. And so because of that, he is extending the deadline. So if you want to look at it in a particular fashion, look at it like this. Satan's had a lease on the earth and his lease is running out. And ultimately it's going to climax and finish in this seven year period of time that we call the tribulation. So I know this may feel like drinking out of a fire hose for a few moments, but I want to give you the most salient facts that you need to know about the tribulation. Here is the first one, and it may not sound all that sensational, but hang with me for a moment. What happens to begin the tribulation is God gets his children out, he removes the protective restraint of the Holy Spirit, and then all hell breaks loose on the earth. Let me read that to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers, they were afraid they were already in the tribulation. And he said, that day will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to hold it back until he is taken out of the way, and then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. I've been asked, who's the Antichrist? I don't know. I won't know. Because see, you understand that the first thing Jesus does is to get us out of here, and then the Bible says the Holy Spirit is taken out. And God is saying, hey, you don't like me, you don't want me, you don't want me in your schools, you don't want me in your public concourse, fine. Knock yourself out. Have a world without me. He pulls the Holy Spirit out, pulls us out, and that's when all hell breaks loose. That explains the seven years that you read about between Revelation 6 and 19. Second most important fact, there will be a single world government that will eventually come under the authority of one man, Satan's counterfeit, the Antichrist. It won't start out that way. When the tribulation begins, there will be 10 world leaders over 10 10 power centers. But it'll be sort of a mini-parliament. But in time, all 10 of these leaders like happened, you could see this happen in in Germany. Adolf Hitler was not elected to to be sole leader, but it just evolved to the place where he was. And that's what will happen during the Antichrist, or during the tribulation of the Antichrist. Revelation 17, verse 12, the 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Beast always means antichrist. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the antichrist. Um, of course, the real idea goes back here to Satan being want- wanting to be worshipped. Uh, by the way, when you read in Revelation, code speak for Satan is dragon. Code speak for the antichrist is beast. I'm going to read this verse identifying antichrist and Satan. Here we go. Revelation 13, verse 4, they worship the devil who gave the Antichrist authority, and they worship the Antichrist, exclaiming there's never been anything like the Antichrist. No one would dare go to war with the Antichrist. The Antichrist had a loud mouth, boastful and blasphemous. It could do anything it wanted for 42 months, which would be the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Number three, and the last thing that you need to know about the tribulation, the single government during this seven year period of time, will have two key components. It will have a religious component and a political and economic component. Now I'm intrigued by the fact that there are two leaders. There is the Antichrist and it's sort of his sidekick who is this leader of a single world religion. Why would Satan in the Antichrist want a religious leader? Well, sort of like the story of the lady lady in Philippians a little while ago. There are going to be people that are going to go into the tribulation that are very religious. And Satan's well cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of people who are going to need a religious impetus to worship the Antichrist. But we know that clearly from what we just read, the issue is to get them to worship Satan. And guys, I want you to please listen to me. Do you know what Satan worship is? Satan worship is not goat heads, and pentagrams, and vampires, and drinking blood. He must get the biggest kick out of that. He must laugh all the way to the bank on that one. Satan worship is, and it has been ever since the very beginning, that right is wrong, and wrong is right. And that truth is a lie, and a lie is truth. That is all you have to believe to be part of Satan's church. If he can get you to believe that right is wrong, the people who do right are evil, and the people who do wrong are right, you're in his church. And he really doesn't care. He doesn't care whether you're a conservative or a progressive. He doesn't doesn't care whether you're a member of ISIS or you're a self-righteous religious fundamentalist. He doesn't care what gender you are. He didn't really care about anything as long as he can get you to believe that right is wrong and wrong is right. His MO has been the same since he proclaimed his message to the angels before he got kicked out of heaven to Adam and Eve and for all the years of history in the world. All he wants to get you to do to believe is to believe that right is wrong and wrong is right. And I want to tell you, We're living in a country today in which that message is getting big. You know, there's a seven-year-old in California, Palmdale, I think it was. His mother put a scripture verse in his lunchbox so that when he ate lunch at school, he could open up his lunch and see a scripture. And some of the kids around him asked him, what he was reading, and he said, I'm reading a scripture verse. And they said, Can we see? And he showed them, and they said, Well, would you make a copy for us? His school told him that he could never do that again. And then they called the sheriff to go to his house. Now, I don't know if we have anybody from that political system in California watching, but I want to tell you something that's not progressive, that's not liberal. It is demonic. It is satanic. I'll tell you, I I don't know. Maybe what I'm saying today isn't smart for a megachurch pastor, but I'm tired of playing pussyfoot with Satan. I'm tired of dancing around. If right is right, if you're a God follower, you need to summon up your courage to say that right is right. If you're not a God follower, then go ahead and say wrong is right. You know, what's interesting about that, this week in the Russian parliament, they passed a law signed by Putin that goes into effect later this month that you can't share religious faith. Even in your house, it can only be shared in a place of worship. Isn't that really interesting? We have a situation in California that's almost identical to the situation that's going on in Putin's Russia. We have a situation where two Iowa churches, and you guys know everything that's going on with the restroom thing. and But these two Iowa churches, because of the Iowa, Iowa Civil Rights Commission, realize that they're in a situation where they could be in violation of the law because they suggest that men should go to men's restrooms and ladies should go to ladies' restrooms according to their biology. But beyond that, according to the Iowa Civil Rights Commission's actual language, these churches could actually be in violation by just saying something from the pulpit, look, look at this, that could be viewed as unwelcome. I mean, look at that. That means people could come into the church with a radical agenda, and they get to decide what's harassment or not. And so these two churches have filed preemptive suit to get, the jur- to get the judge and the courts to weigh into it. But the strange thing about this is, is that these legal experts, one legal expert said, well, I think churches could say what they want to say, but... You know, he said the the bathroom thing, I don't know. Another legal professor said, oh, it's very clear. They have to do whatever the state says about the bathrooms. And then this legal expert said, the sermons that stick to human sexuality matters pertaining to theology, she said, would probably be constitutionally protected. But she suggested that situations could arise where a preacher's remarks could cross over the line into harassment. But then again, that harassment is in the eye of the beholder of the person that doesn't like the message. And guys, let me just tell you this. You know, you say "Well, Mark, you know, and I know, I know how it works today. I know how the language is. That's a hate-filled message. I don't have any hate. My heart goes, if you're a part of Satan's church, my heart goes out to you. Because you know what happens? In the, I don't have time to read this, but in Revelation chapter 17, the Antichrist and Satan ultimately destroy this religious thing. Well, I, I've got 44 seconds to get to the second part of this. <laughs> And that is it. not only is there a religious component to the tribulation, but there's also a a secular and economic uh, component, too. And this is in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. He, Antichrist, forced everyone, small and great, rich or poor, free or slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of his name. And the next verse says the number 666. I used to hear this when I was a kid and think, this is crazy. Because the idea back then was that it'd have to be tattooed. And I think, there's always been a gray market. There's always been a black market. So consequently, in, you know, anybody could buy or sell. It's said, not now. Because you see, for what we read about to be true, and this is what's so cool, this is written 2,000 years ago, probably not even feasible till like five years ago. You'd have to have the complete loss of privacy, a cashless society, centralized banking. Do you know... And You don't need me to tell you this. I mean, I probably should, I'm probably just using up valuable time, but you understand this process is already going on because especially in Europe, they're utilizing this, this chip because after all, one of the big problems that we have with the economy is, is identity theft. I mean, when you give your credit card number, how do we know that it's actually you? But if it was on your person then all kinds of things would be possible. And in in, in Europe already, they're actually sending out kits if you want to buy one where you can actually inject the chip into your own hand. And isn't it strange that the Bible said the hand? And the chip goes right in between the thumb and the index finger. I was reading an article that said, this is a couple years old, it said it can help you buy groceries at Walmart. It's good for soldiers and journalists in the war zones. It could help law enforcement quickly locate a kidnapped child or a Christian. It, it didn't say that last part. <laughs> it could be used to track the activities of felons. People could unlock their homes or cars, gain access to a building, pass through an airport, unlock their laptops if children were chipped. Teachers could take in tenants just like that. Police could track cars, read data without needing to scan license plates. If you walked into a donut shop, the owner could read your taste preferences, glazed or not glazed, without needing a loyalty card. Let me go a step further while I'm just getting in trouble today. (laughs) Do you notice that the punishment is economic? Isn't that interesting? That the people that don't take this mark of identification can't buy or sell. It doesn't necessarily say that they're killed or thrown into prison. It's just like, we're going to hit you economically. Well, the chill winds of the tribulation are already blowing in America. You know? I actually have people here at New Spring that have a stalker. Somebody really ought to harm them. And they go to law enforcement, and law enforcement does what they can. They just basically say, okay, we'll create a restraining order. But the person still comes around. Well, we really can't do anything until, you, until that person harms you. But let somebody not bake a cake for a homosexual wedding. <laughs> I mean, in Oregon, there are a couple of bakers. And they they just said, we just don't feel comfortable doing this. $136,000. All you have to believe is that right is wrong and wrong is right. And you made your choice. And like I said earlier, somebody could say, Mark, You don't understand. Don't don't you realize? I mean, you're pastor of a huge church, and and don't you know that you could have people walk out and call you hateful to deliver a message like this? You know, I've been popular and unpopular, and all things being equal, I'd rather be popular. But that's not what I'm afraid of. Not before last I was called, the lady who'd just come to our church for a short time. And they said, she's dying with cancer, and we don't know if she's going to make it through the night. And they thought, we, we weren't sure we could get a hold of you, so we offered pastors of other churches. And she said, no, I just won't talk to Mark. And thankfully, they got a hold of me, and I went out to her house and walked to the back bedroom and sat down on the bed, and she knew she was going, told me she knew she was going. So I was talking to her about Jesus, and she smiled and said, God spoke to me many times through your messages. I know I'm going to heaven. I just want you to pray for my family. See, I I really don't care a whole lot about being popular with a world system that's going down the tubes. Every week I stand here, I talk to somebody who's about to go into eternity. That's what scares me. That's what scares me. And someone could say, well, Mark, it's it's a generational thing. You're an older guy, and now I'm a millennial, and we just think, let me tell you what you don't want to be. You don't want to be a tribulational. (laughs) Actually, I'm a millennial. I'm headed for the millennial kingdom, but I know I've taken a lot of time this morning, but guys, you realize what God has done to set you up to have an opportunity to make a choice to choose Jesus, and I can't leave this service without giving you a chance to choose him. And you know what? You could explore Jesus, and you could just walk away and say, I think the world is right. Hey, that's, that, that, that's, that's your call, and God is into letting us make our calls. But I'm talking to somebody here today who said, you know, today it all kind of clicked for me. I really got a holistic, integrated view of what's happening in the world, and I've decided I want Jesus well I'm going to pray a prayer with you and if you want to join me you can I'll pray it slowly so that you can repeat it it's not the words it's what you feel in your heart that matters you ready God's just looking for a big yes dear God I know I'm a sinner can't save myself I can never be righteous by myself but I believe you're righteous and I believe you're right you're right even when you say what I do is wrong I believe Jesus died for all my wrongdoing. And I believe he rose from the grave. I choose Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, I have a gift I wanna give you. There's a book and, uh, that I wrote in a DVD and a coupon for a new Bible. Just go back to guest service. They won't hassle you or anything. Just say, I pray with Mark. Thank you for being here for the most PC <laughs> illiterate sermon of the year.